When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In old Nan's stories, giants were outsized men who lived in colossal castles, fought with huge swords and walked about in boots a boy could hide in. These were something else more bear-like than human, and as woolly as the mammoths they rode. Seated, it was hard to say how big they were. Ten feet tall, maybe, or twelve, John thought. Maybe fourteen, but no taller. Their sloping chests might have passed for those of men, but their arms hung down too far, and their lower torsos looked half again as wide as their upper. Their legs were shorter than their arms, but very thick, and they wore no boots at all. Their feet were broad, splayed things, hard and horny and black. Necklace, their huge, heavy heads thrust forward from between their shoulder blades, and their faces were squashed and brutal. Rat's eyes, no larger than beads, were almost lost within folds of horny flesh, but they snuffled constantly, smelling as much as they saw. They're not wearing skins, John realised. That's hair. Shaggy pelts covered their bodies, thick below the waist, sparser above. The stink that came off them was choking. But perhaps that was the mammoths. And Joraman blew the horn of winter and awoke giants from the earth. He looked for great swords ten feet long, but saw only clubs. Most were just the limbs of dead trees, some still trailing shattered branches. A few had stone balls lashed to the ends to make colossal mauls. Song never says of the horn can put them back to sleep. A storm of swords... John, too. Giants straddle that line between fantasy and reality by being almost realistic. Because, of course, I don't believe giant people ever existed, but Earth was once populated by megafauna, a word so cool and so rarely appropriate, we just had to use it. In most cases, these creatures have long since died out, but in a few cases, they live on. And in a few other cases, they exist in much smaller form via a related species. An ancient ancestor of the crocodile is the Sarcosuchus, a.k.a. the Supercroc. They died out over 100 million years ago and averaged 9 meters or 29 feet long, whereas a 6-meter crocodile now would be close to record-breaking. The modern nearly flightless Ceramus max out at around 3 feet tall and eat mostly meat using elegant tactics such as pin the prey to the ground with talon while ripping it apart with beak. Or repeatedly slam against rock. This talon is referred to descriptively as a sickle claw and is one of the traits marking it as the sole survivors of the lineage of Forus Rassidae, a.k.a. terror birds, which I probably mispronounced, so we'll stick with terror birds. 
that could reach 10 feet in length with proportionately large sickle claws and presumably appetites. They slammed even larger prey against even larger rocks, we can guess, if we're trying to scare ourselves. Terror birds are rather aptly named, and a good example of why ancient prehistory can be even more intimidating than the inventions of fiction. Because there's nothing quite like, this actually existed. This is or was real when it comes to turning up the dial on fear. It strikes a chord deep in our own evolutionary instincts. A less terrifying, less ancient, and more familiar example is the mammoth, of which there are many subspecies. They are, of course, related to elephants. The last mammoth species apparently died out around the time of the pyramids, vastly more ancient than terror birds or super crocs. Mammoths could reach as large as two and a half times larger than modern Asian elephants. That's up to 12 tons in weight. And if the real world can have giant crocodiles, giant birds, not to mention giant sharks, snakes, insects, and just about everything else, well, why not giant people? Whether it was intentional or not, maybe George R. R. Martin just loves giants since the New York Giants are his favorite football team. But by putting a human-like face on this concept of prehistoric megafauna, riding other prehistoric megafauna and loving them as pets or something, it brings us closer to them in the story. Readers might sympathize with the notion that mammoths and direwolves are going extinct in A Song of Ice and Fire, but we sympathize more with the children of the forest and the giants, probably, because they're more like us. They speak, they love, they have culture and language and history, even music. And the giants are in close proximity and theme to the free folk, who are facing their own form of extinction for some of the same reasons. Both of them are caught between civilization and winter, between nights of steel and nights of snow. A common plight with a human species serves to make them even more sympathetic to us, while George R. R. Martin's writing does the rest. Hello and welcome to When Giants Roam. This is the History of Westeros podcast. I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and today we have a collaborator. Hey everyone, my name is Amanda, I go by Crow Food's Daughter, and I do have a YouTube channel, it's called The Disputed Lands, and you can also find me on Twitter, at crowfood underscore SD. That's right, we're very excited to be working together. A lot of y'all have wanted us to work together for a while, and now it's happening, and well... This isn't just going to be a one-episode series. There's going to be several. Look out for more Giants episodes following this one. History of Westeros is brought to you by our patrons. Thank you to Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, and to our Dragon Rider patrons. Telenes the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, and Hunter of House Blackcloud, the Stormrunner, King of the Sky, Rider of Heranicon, the Windworm, a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum silver, horns, claws, and fangs of pure white, with eyes the colors of diamonds of fire. Prepare yourself. This episode is going places. It's time to travel through time. We'll immerse ourselves in George's eras long since past, mixed with ancient real-world prehistory. What our own ancestors believed about giants isn't terribly different in spirit from what Old Nan and others tell us about the giants of Westeros. Except that our ancestors have been proven wrong. There's never been any real-world evidence to support the existence of such beings. Real-world stories about giants, if they have a grain of truth to them, well, it's not the part about the giants. Old Nan, on the other hand. Giants and a Song of Ice and Fire. 
The way we're introduced to the concept of giants in World is fairly straightforward. They're a race of very large, human-like beings who once lived in various regions throughout the known world. That much seems to bear out. Crucially, the people of the Seven Kingdoms believe the giants to now be extinct. This, along with almost everything else we learn about them early on, is false. Well, other than the part about them being large. But they don't get any credit for that, since it's already in their name. I mean, they are called giants after all. We heard from Old Nan in the opening quote, Now here's what maesters seem to believe, if the world of ice and fire is any guide. Now the giants are gone even in the lands beyond the wall, and the last reports of them are more than a hundred years old. And even those are dubious. Tales that the rangers of the watch might tell over a warm fire. So, Old Nan was wrong? I know it's shocking to hear that, but giants don't wield swords, wear boots, or live in castles of any size, unless you count Sir Gregor Clegane. The maesters are clearly wrong, too, as you can see. You're more used to that, though. George brings it along slowly, gradually taking them from legend to reality. Early in A Game of Thrones, Osha comes into the picture and she says giants are still alive, except for the one her brother killed. She even suggests Hodor has giant's blood. It's possible she's telling eh, tall tales, but she comes off as an honest person, and they've never been beyond the wall, so they can't easily object. Except for Lewin. He scoffs. In A Clash of Kings, we meet Rattleshirt, and he wears a giant skull, which is evidence that's tough to deny. But this doesn't tell us they still exist, only that they once did. Definitive proof comes in John 2 of A Storm of Swords through the miracle of sight. He has a direct encounter with them amidst Mance's great army, and he attempts a headcount but eventually loses track and comes to the conclusion that there must be hundreds of giants among the free folk. Val will later say that there are almost 200 left and over 80 mammoths. Now, this is shocking for both the reader as much as it is for John. The most learned and wise people educating him didn't believe giants still existed. Giants? There's something extra shocking about finding out things that large exist. The others are silent and come in darkness. The children of the forest are also silent, but also small and they live underground. Not to mention they're clever and don't want to be seen. In the huge cave system, Bran is told there are only about 60 of them. So they're also not very plentiful. For maesters to be wrong about the extinction of those beings is understandable enough. But giants, on the surface, it sounds a little strange for the most educated people on the continent to be wrong about the existence of 14-foot-tall creatures that ride mammoths. How did they miss that? (laughs) John was shocked. Maesters would be too. But the free folk would say, well, of course there are giants. It really drives the point home that among other things, A Song of Ice and Fire is a story about perspective. If the maesters are wrong about this, what else are they wrong about? A lot, really. The lands beyond the wall truly are a land apart from the Seven Kingdoms. It's almost as if time has progressed differently there, given so many extant creatures believed extinct by most everyone in the South and powers thought long gone. When we say the South, we mean it like OSHA did. It means south of the wall. Remember that it's all in where you're standing. The natives, of course, do not hold these misconceptions about the death of the old powers and the elder races. We've seen them and the lands they roam. Those lands are untamed, ancient, magical. 
But there was a time when all of Westeros met this description, a time before humans, the era before the Age of Heroes, the Dawn Age. Giants of the Dawn. What can most accurately be told about the Dawn Age? The Eastern lands were awash with many peoples, uncivilized as all the world was uncivilized, but numerous. But on Westeros, from the lands of always winter to the shores of the summer sea, only two peoples existed, the children of the forest and the race of creatures known as the giants. Of the giants in the Dawn Age, little and less can be said, for no one has gathered their tales, their legends, their histories. Men of the Watch say that the wildlings have tales of the giants living uneasily alongside the children, ranging where they would and taking what they wanted. All the accounts claim that they were huge and powerful creatures, but simple. It's a tantalizing image and hard to imagine. Westeros with no people at all? It's not as simple as erasing all the towns and castles and roads and going from there. More animals of many kinds, more trees, even normal seasons. At what point the giants populated the continent of Westeros is uncertain. We only know that the giants and the children were present and established well before the coming of the first men and that giants could be found scattered across various regions of Westeros. It was like this for hundreds of thousands of years, perhaps millions. Our best real-world analog appears to be Neanderthals, who also existed for at least hundreds of thousands of years. They weren't giant compared to ancient humans, but they were larger, thicker, and stockier, which is similar to giants. Neanderthals weren't hairy, but they did have cold-weather adaptations in their DNA similar to that of mammoths, which is, of course, a familiar connection to the Song of Ice and Fire giants. Some science suggests their small populations limited the gene pool, which contributed to their decline. This also explains why so many modern populations, even now, have Neanderthal DNA, because the small gene pools encouraged breeding with different but similar species. Neanderthals and humans indeed bred with each other and with other now extinct similar species like Denisovans. The concept is reflected in A Song of Ice and Fire as well, and we'll be delving into it from several approaches. Neanderthals predominantly lived in caves, had stone tools, artwork, medicine, cared for each other in family units, had burials, and faced a wild, untamed world. Most of this is true of giants in A Song of Ice and Fire as well, with a few other things added in. Neanderthals were big on eating meat, hunting was their prime food supply, and they may have occasionally practiced cannibalism. According to Westerosi legends, giants are the same. We heard it in the opening quote, but this does appear to be a misconception. For example, one one is a vegetarian, and his teeth make this extremely clear. We get a good look at Mag the Mighty, and it's no different. Flat, wide teeth, good for grinding root vegetables. No incisors like, say, we have. But despite multiple people worrying aloud that one one will eat them, it doesn't really appear that he'd ever want to, nor his ancestors. There are a number of tales like this from legend. Even old Nan's tales refer to giants eating people. With that said, perhaps they ate human flesh when they had to, like so many others have had to do in the long ancient history of the North. Or maybe there have been cases when the giants have been desperate enough to feed on one of their own. That's believed to be a strong possible explanation for many, if not all, of the Neanderthal cannibalism examples. One thing's for sure. If giants eat humans, they surely didn't do so in the Dawn Age, back when there were none. But regardless, 
Salacious exceptions like these have a way of capturing the imagination and lingering in memory longer than the mundane realities. Earlier, we dared to claim Old Nan was wrong, but perhaps there's a grain of truth to those claims. Swords and boots and castles are not so likely, but the idea that they were completely simple is questionable as well. For one thing, making stone tools and burying their dead alone puts them above almost every species on our planet. And giants speak. They converse. Even Neanderthals may not have done this. It's debated. One one is a good example. He is learning common and already speaks the old tongue. Two languages and getting close to our hearts. They have history. John spoke with the giant whenever he could, through leathers or one of the free folk they had brought back from the grove, and was learning much and more about his people and their history. He only wished that Sam was here to write the stories down. A Dance with the Dragons, John 8. Oral history passed down from who knows how long. These stories could be amazing, and we agree with John. We wish Sam were there to write the stories down. Now, one one is very useful at helping with building. John describes him as having the strength of a dozen men, but this is a topic large enough for us to deal with separately. Even if, say, they can't copy the castles they helped Brandon the Builder with long ago, we're still looking at a lot of rudimentary but notable traits that indicate intelligence and higher brain function. What all this tells us is that while they may not be complex, that doesn't mean they're simple. Giant's best friend. Among all the signs of intelligence and culture, one of the most notable is that they ride mammoths. It's a bigger deal than you might think. Their closeness to mammoths is interesting because it's fairly advanced. It might seem simple enough, but the evidence is overwhelming that we humans built the pyramids before we started riding horses. Humans probably never rode mammoths at all, but they did and do ride elephants, which is fairly similar. African elephants and woolly mammoths are about the same size, though mammoths are more similar to Asian elephants, genetically speaking. One big family, really. Emphasis on big. Humans began domesticating elephants, perhaps as far back as they began domesticating horses. India is the place where this most certainly began. And though elephants might seem like a much harder pet to keep around, there are advantages. Elephants are a lot smarter than horses, and they exhibit a lot of advanced emotions and cognitive functions like grief, self-awareness, cooperation, family structure, use of tools, memory, and language. Not just that, but they live two to three times longer than horses. As their genetic relative, though a lot less is known about them, mammoths did have a lot of similar qualities. So perhaps it's safe enough to assume that a lot of these things are likewise similar for GRRM's mammoths. And one of the mammoths we see during the battle at the wall is gray and white, indicating it is perhaps half a century old or so. That means that they are easier to train, and the effort to train them pays off more because they live so much longer, which is just as important, if not more so, because a pet that lives long is nice. Two school captives lingered by the stockade. Four giants were among them, massive, hairy creatures with sloped shoulders, legs large as tree trunks, and huge, splayed feet. Big as they were, they might still have passed through the wall, but one would not leave his mammoth, and the others would not leave him. That quote shows not just an emotional investment in the animal, but an understanding from other giants regarding this relationship. In other words, they seem to think the giant who won't leave his mammoth is behaving at least somewhat reasonably. Another similarity is using them as weapons of war. We've seen mammoths in battle already, 
and probably slash hopefully will again if Giants ever fought each other, and that seems likely enough, perhaps these engagements included clashes on mammoth back. Let's take a moment to imagine a charge of mammoth cavalry. That really puts the heavy in heavy cavalry. There's a few important differences here amidst a haze of that which we simply cannot know. Humans kill elephants for tusks and meat and hides. It's the same with horses. Well, except for the tusks. But most anything, some humans will keep as a pet, while other humans will eat, or do both. We simply don't have that here with giants and mammoths, because giants do not eat meat at all. Nor do we see the giants making use of mammoth tusks or mammoth hides, though we admit it's possible they do, we just haven't seen it. It's difficult for us to perceive the kind of relationship that truly exists here. It's possible that giants revere mammoths well beyond that of a pet or companion. We can imagine some kind of religious significance, or that giants see it as a duty to protect mammoths, or both. For a real-world example, in Hinduism, the king of the gods is Indra, whose mount is a white elephant named Arivada, not to mention Ganesh or Ganesha, a god of beginnings, who is depicted as having the head of an elephant. Just as we could speculate some giants might be less hairy than others given the climates they may have lived in, regional considerations would also impact their closeness to other species. So perhaps the less hirsute giants of the south and or of Essos rode the less hirsute version of woolly mammoth. Northern giants ride woolly mammoths, southern giants ride regular mammoths or elephants. Maybe. As we examined with the fun example of mammoth cavalry, though giants probably fought amongst each other nearby, they may have fought other giant species as well. As seasons change, there would be migrations, and those migrations might cause groups to encounter each other. If we're talking much larger timescales, then as regions themselves changed over time, there would be migrations of populations of giants as well, like mass migrations, perhaps. And that, too, could bring them into conflict with each other, though we're probably not out of line speculating that sometimes they'd get along. Modern science seems to believe that even ancient Neanderthals figured out that it's bad for the health of the group to procreate within. Genetic diversity is healthier. Igrit talks about it with John, speaking against marrying within your own village even. She thinks Craster's incest is terrible and gross. So it's a good thing she never learned about John's ancestors. But point being, Given that we've seen a large number of correlations with giants and Neanderthals, it's not unreasonable to think they had an understanding of the dangers of incest as well. Other than the elements, and perhaps each other, we wonder what kinds of threats the giants faced. It's somewhat hard to imagine larger creatures offering a serious threat on a regular basis. But in the Dawn Age, things might have been different. Don't forget that Sothorios exists where gigantic lizards and enormous poisonous snakes and wyverns even are present. And what about dragons? Or if dragons were engineered, then instead consider the ancient cousins of dragons. Did any form of giant ever interact with any form of wyvern, for example? Even Balerion suffered in an encounter with fireworms, and fireworms live in caves, as giants often do. Half a million years ago, some other things might have lived down in those depths as well, and elsewhere. Who knows, really? If Sam were writing down the histories of the giants, what would he tell us the giants feared most in the world? Not just what threatened them the most, what they feared the most. Those two aren't always the same thing, right? What did they tell their children tales of? What frightened them at night? Things like that. Evocative questions? Difficult to answer. We do know of at least one certain example of an enemy, one species that was a threat. 
though definitely not because they were larger. The first foes. Despite the possibility of fearsome prehistoric beasts, the giants likely faced few regular threats from other living beings until the first men came along. But there is one exception. We're told that they lived uneasily alongside the children, but there's evidence that it was worse than that, at least on occasion, if not more often. Consider the question of the so-called tree towns of the children of the forest built high above the ground, which some believe were to avoid land predators. But other sources dispute this, stating that their greatest foes were the giants, as hinted at in tales told in the north, and as possibly proved by Maester Kennet in the study of a barrow near Long Lake, a giant's burial with obsidian arrowheads found amidst the extant ribs. Maester Kennet's specialty was graves and funerary customs. He wrote the book Passages of the Dead, so this is something like expert testimony. He wrote the book during the time of Cregan Stark, so something like 150 years before the start of the books, give or take a few decades since Cregan Stark ruled a really long time. It's interesting that he was able to find evidence fairly recently from an archaeological standpoint, but not strange given how much of the realm still rests on the edge of nature. It's not like it was in danger of being paved over for parking or something. Especially places like Moat Kalen, where there's circumstantial evidence of giants' involvement in the construction, but I'm doubtful giants actually like living in swamps, right? The children can have that. Jojen Reed tells Bran and us that his people, the Kranigmen, live closer to nature than other humans and remember things forgotten elsewhere. Regarding the findings in this mentioned grave, it certainly fits that the children would have used ranged weapons given their diminutive size, and obsidian is awfully sharp, but perhaps it's difficult to take down a giant with only arrows. Even ultra-sharp obsidian might not be enough given the children were unlikely to have the strength required to draw heavier bows. However, it only takes a scratch when an arrowhead is coated with poison. Continue to imagine Moat Kalen and their Kratnok men. Recall those awful descriptions of what happened to the unlucky Ironmen who were hit by arrows from the so-called Bog Devils. Somehow I doubt the children were above such tools. I mean, would you be above poison with a giant coming at you? Mm. As sharp as obsidian is, really, poison in combination with it might be extremely effective. But this remains a theory. The children had magic as well, though not all of the magic that they possessed would be useful in a fight. Since we're looking at it from the giant's point of view, having the children whom they called the squirrel people as sometimes enemies means they likely faced all that plus more. We didn't even mention things like traps, nets, or pits with sharpened stakes and such. In other words, the children are cleverer. And what did the giants have against that? Well, a single blow from a giant could likely slay a child. The children are furtive, but the giants do have a strong sense of smell, which might have played a major role in their interactions. They may have also been more numerous. One clue is that there are more of them left than the children now, it seems. And we shouldn't exaggerate our concept of how often they fought. It might have been an uncommon thing. One thing we're not terribly clear on is their lifespans. The children clearly lived centuries or more, but giants, we have very little clue at all. It seems very unlikely they lived nearly that long, though. Almost no creature on Earth lives even one century, and none of them are land mammals. What else did Maester Kennet find in his studies? Like real-world archaeologists, we can learn a lot from bones, whether they were broken and healed or not. Wear and tear can tell a story. One question we'd love to get answers on is why. 
meaning what drove the children and the giants to fight in the first place. Maybe they liked eating each other. (laughs) Seriously, though, we have to consider the basis. Was it about food? I tend to doubt that, and I'm dubious that resources were so scarce. And it seems like they might have had different diets. And not only that, but the children classify themselves as never having had a large population. So at their size, what resource could these diminutive creatures be consuming that the giants would have wanted? One possibility is territory. Children and giants both lived in caves. In the cave of Bloodraven and so many singers before him where Bran meets the children, there are a myriad of skulls. Among those are a few giant skulls. The world of ice and fire says, quote, the giants had no kings and no lords, made no homes save in caverns or beneath tall trees, and they worked neither metal nor fields. The second mention there is of tall trees, which the children would also live in, though they'd be up in the branches. Not to mention, one would think that there would be plenty of trees to go around. So not sure they fought over trees, though werewoods might have been an exception. Caves, however, may not have been quite as plentiful as needed. And in winter, they may have even been the difference between life and death, because the deep cold doesn't penetrate down there. Additionally, their anatomy is another clue that giants probably lived in fairly dark environments, as they are said to have small eyes with poor eyesight, but that they, quote, smelled as much as they saw. Small, underdeveloped eyes with poor eyesight and a keen sense of smell are a combination of attributes often seen in nature among animals that spend a lot of time in dark places or underground. When the eyes become useless, the other senses become heightened. This helps explain why there have been no sightings of giants for 100 years. Not only do they live far north and beyond the wall, but they spend a lot of time underground. We see evidence of the bones of giants not only in Bloodraven's cave, but we also see the bones of giants mentioned within the vast cave system beneath Norvos as well. The cave of the Greenseers is monstrously huge, effectively infinite, given the children telling Bran that they've lived there for a million years without exploring all of it. If the giants ever tried to claim this place, well, they lost out a long time ago as well. And what a loss. Even giants could fit a large number in that place, assuming the ceiling was high enough. And there are other places with caves that are notable, potentially former homes of giants. Sticking with the north, Bran and company took shelter in a cave where that friendly man from House Little was encountered. The caves of Hardhome are also noted for their great number and the strange sounds emanating from within. John and Agrit spent a memorable scene in a top-shelf cave. I mean, this one has a heated plumbing. <laughs> Prime cavern real estate right there. Before that, John and Corrin Halfhand spent time in a cave system hidden beneath a waterfall while trying to evade capture. In the south, there are more examples, such as the Hollow Hill, where the Brotherhood Without Banners made a hideout. They use other caves as well. Ariane and company spent time in a cave system on their way to Storm's End. It's our best guess as to why they fought each other. Everyone else fights over land, why not them? The greatest caves might be like castles are now, if we're speaking in equivalent terms. Especially if one considers a place like Casterly Rock, itself a place that began as caves. So did the Iron Bank begin essentially as just a door on a cave. In other words, people definitely fought over caves. But it sounds like before people came along, these beings fought over them instead. The World Book recounts the legend remembered through song and story of Gendel and Gorn, who were called upon to mediate a dispute between a clan of children and a family of giants over the possession of a cave. And I see where they're coming from. I'm not sure I would want giants in my cave either. 
And if I'm a giant, I might not trust those little things being around when I'm trying to sleep. What with their magic and control over animals and their super sharp black rock and all their cunning besides. So with all that said, this is Westeros we're referring to here. And we should consider the rest of the world. Species similar to the children, like the Ifaquevron or perhaps the Nafi, may indicate that squirrel people were more widespread across the world in the dawn of days. Comparatively, the evidence that giants existed outside Westeros is a lot more solid. With this knowledge, we can guess confidently that there were giants who lived beyond the scope of the children and would not have had them as a foe at all, though they may have had other foes instead. The first of the giants. Given that the giants lived in various places throughout Westeros, one would guess that over time, certain divergences in size, shape, and, say, hairiness, based on climate and diet, would be evident over the extreme long term. We're talking potentially hundreds of thousands of years, and it wouldn't be stretching for it to be vastly more. On Earth, it wasn't so different. Those super crocodiles roamed for something like 20 million years. And giants were not limited to Westeros alone you might be surprised to learn that they were also found in various parts of Essos as well. Actually, they may have initially emerged over there first before heading west to evolve into the version of giant we're most familiar with. After all, back then, Westeros and Essos were joined by the now shattered Arm of Dorne. For all we know, they were in Essos first, before finding their way west across the Arm. For whatever reasons, giants were widespread, because they too probably went wherever they wanted across the ancient Pangaea. Some of these giants may have evolved entirely separately, only to later interbreed to become entirely new species. Over such a vast span of time, there are so many possibilities to imagine. According to Maester Yandel, the bones of giants can be found within the caves of Norvos and littered amongst the Bone Mountains. It is also said that giants once lived on the island of Ib. We have the Titan of Bravos, an immense statue of a giant similar to the Colossus of Rhodes, said to protect the city of Bravos from peril. And while the Titan is not an actual giant, the Titan of Bravos and its legend may in fact be a memory of giants, as giants were once very real in Essos in the distant past. But that's not all. There's more. In Tyrion 2 of A Dance with Dragons, we see a circle of standing stones within the velvet hills of what used to be Andalos that Illyrio claims had been raised by giants. Recall that we told you that's what people said about Stonehenge and countless other structures. So perhaps Illyrio is repeating a tall tale. But bones don't lie. We also have the mysterious city of Lorath, whose first inhabitants' bones were found to be so immensely large that scholars suggest may have been the result of giants interbreeding with humans. While this may be fanciful speculation, Lorath is located just north of Norvos, where the bones of giants have been found, and we also have a race of very tall men called the Tall Men, who inhabited much of the northern grasslands to the west, and whose progenitor was said to have worn about the pelt the King of the Hairy Men. So were they fighting hairy men? Or could this suggest that Husor Mai was a hairy man himself? Either way, the concept of humans and giants interbreeding has been suggested in a number of places, and we shall return to this in detail. There's also a story out of Volantis of a triarch named Belicho who was eaten by giants, though we don't know how long ago this was since Volantis itself is at least a thousand years old. Beyond the bones in the lands of the further east, we are left with little information to go with as far as evidence of giants, but that doesn't mean they weren't present. The World Book explicitly states that the Citadel's knowledge grows thinner the farther we travel from the lands of Westeros, and in the far east, 
well, this is very much the case. But we do have at least one example of giants being found beyond the Bone Mountains. Although the race of giants, known as the Joguin, were said to inhabit the northern range of the Bones, called the White Mountains, we also know that the Joguin ventured beyond, as the Jogosnai are a culture found beyond the Bones, on the northeast portion of the world map. And it is said that the last of the Joguin was brought down by them during the Battle of the Howling Hills, which lies just north of Kayakayanaya. Furthermore, speaking of the Bones Mountains, Maesters speculate that a mass exodus of people had occurred at some point in the ancient past. The bones of men, the bones of horses, the bones of giants and camels and oxen, of every sort of beast and bird and monster, all can be found amongst these savage peaks. Not only is this a reminder of the timeless cave where Bran weds the trees so full of bones, but this also suggests that a migration of people from the east to the west of the Bone Mountains had occurred at least once, long before people migrated, giants may have as well. The E.T. chapter of the World Book also recounts an exodus of people from the Far East where every tribe of men went its own way around the time of the Long Night. So although there isn't much information to pull from the Far East, the presence of giants beyond the bones cannot be completely ruled out either. After all, so far, they seem to be everywhere else. And again, who would have stopped them? Beyond Essos, we don't have any other legends or histories of giants, but we might have something similar and perhaps much more interesting. Within the jungles of Sothorios, there may exist what may have been an evolutionary ancestor to these ancient Essosi giants. Within the jungles of Sothorios, there are rumors of incredibly large apes said to dwarf the largest giants. And on the Isle of Lang, there are reports of spotted humpback apes said to be almost as clever as men and hooded apes as large as giants said to be so strong they could pull the arms and legs off a man as easily as a boy might pull the wings off a fly. Which interestingly parallels John's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where one one becomes enraged and had pulled Sir Patrick's arm off like, quote, a child pulling petals off a daisy. And when examining the passage more closely, with the mention of one set of apes being as clever as men and another set of apes as large as giants, it seems this does appear to be something of a nod to evolutionary science by our author. And if this is the case, this could mean that the evolutionary ancestors of giants had originated on the Isosi side of the world and not the Westerosi side. And while a connection to these great apes is largely just fun speculation, there doesn't seem to be a ton of evidence, just a few hints here and there suggesting this concept. It still gives us great difficulty in estimating where they first began, if indeed it was a singular origin. With the Jogwin, a.k.a. stone giants, and other unnamed species from evolutionary branches that seem to be extinct, we've played fantasy archaeologist. But George R. Martin has also given us a chance to play fantasy anthropologist with those that are still around. Cousin Ib. This is Andalos, my friend. The land your Andals came from. They took it from the hairy men who were here before them, cousins to the hairy men of Ib. The heart of Hugor's ancient realm lies north of us, but we are passing through its southern marshes. In Pentos, these are called the Flatlands. Farther east stand the Velvet Hills, whence we are bound. A dance with dragons. Tyrion, too. 
The hairy men are a now extinct race who proliferated much of eastern and central Essos. They are described in the world book as a race of shaggy savage warriors who rode to battle on unicorns and are believed to have been the larger forebearers or cousins to the Ebenese, who are very much not extinct. By the way, I love that we could trust this despite it coming from a generally untrustworthy source in Illyrio. Even he has little reason to lie about ancient history. Little, not none. Thankfully, Maester Yandel corroborates Illyrio's claims within the world book. Andalos stretched from the Axe to what is now the Bravosian coastlands and south as far as the flatlands and the Velvet Hills. The Andals brought iron weapons with them and suits of iron plates against which the tribes that inhabited these lands could do little. One such tribe was the Hairy Men. Their name is lost, but they are still remembered in certain Pantoshi histories. The Pantoshi believe them to be akin to the men of Ib. The histories of the Citadel largely agree, though some argue that the Hairy Men settled Ib and others that the Hairy Men came first from Ib. Whether the Hairy Men came from Ib or settled Ib is a similar question we have with the giants in Westeros versus Essos. What the Andals did to the First Men and the children and the remaining giants when they came to Westeros sounds similar to the fate of the Hairy Men, which is dominate and kill them with superior weapons of war and expand wherever possible, even into difficult climates. In another portion of the world book, we see speculation on the mysterious first inhabitants of Norvos who had built crude villages prior to the Valyrians. Who were these predecessors? Some believe them to have been kin to the maze-makers of Larath, but that seems unlikely, for they built in wood, not stone, and left no mazes to confound us. Others suggest that they were cousins to the men of Ib. Most, however, believe them to have been Andals. Whoever these first Norvoshi might have been, their towns did not survive. Legend tells us they were driven from the Noin by an onslaught of hairy men out of the east, surely some close kin of the Ebenese. Then, when we get to the Grasslands chapter of the World Book, we also see that the hairy men once inhabited the regions surrounding the Silver Sea as well. So throughout Andalos, the Grasslands, and the Isle of Ib, we have this race of ancient shaggy warriors who were, for a time, quite widespread and constantly linked to the men of Ib. But it doesn't directly give us a whole lot of connections to the giants, now does it? The pattern of a people or species being overrun by another is nothing new to us, and we don't have very detailed descriptions of the hairy men since they're all apparently gone. But since they are described as similar to the Ibanese, well, with them, of course, we have some very, very detailed descriptions, and this is where we start to see connections. The Ibanese stand apart from the other races of mankind. They are a heavy people, broad about the chest and shoulders, but seldom standing more than five and a half feet in height, with thick, short legs and long arms. Though short and squat, they are ferociously strong. At wrestling, their favourite sport, no man of the Seven Kingdoms can hope to equal them. Their faces, characterised by sloping brows with heavy ridges, small sunken eyes, great square teeth and massive jaws, seem brutish and ugly to Westerosi eyes, an impression heightened by their guttural, grunting tongue. But in truth, the men of Ib are a cunning folk, skilled craftsmen, able hunters and trackers, and doughty warriors. They are the most hirsute people in the known world. Though their flesh is pale, with dark blue veins beneath the skin, their hair is dark and wiry. Ibanese men are heavily bearded. Wiry body hair covers their arms, legs, chests, and backs. Coarse, dark hair is common amongst their women, even on the upper lip. 
Already, I'm sure you can tell that there are some similarities, but let's review the description of Giants so the comparison is complete. Here's where the details really come together. Ten feet tall, maybe, or twelve, John thought. Maybe fourteen, but no taller. Their sloping chests might have passed for those of men, but their arms hung down too far, and their lower torsos looked half again as wide as their upper. Their legs were shorter than their arms, but very thick, and they wore no boots at all. Their feet were broad, splayed things, hard and horny and black. Necklace, their huge, heavy heads thrust forward from between their shoulder blades, and their faces were squashed and brutal. Rat's eyes, no larger than beads, were almost lost within folds of horny flesh, but they snuffled constantly, smelling as much as they saw. They're not wearing skins, John realized. That's hair. Shaggy pelts covered their bodies, thick below the waist, sparser above. Did you notice any similarities there? I'm sure you did. For example, the giants were noted to have tiny eyes, and the Ibanese are described as having small sunken eyes. The giants are described as having square teeth, and the Ibanese have great square teeth. The giants are said to be covered by a shaggy pelt of fur, while the Ibanese are the most hirsute people in the known world, with wiry body hair covering their arms, legs, chests, and backs. With the giants, John noted that their legs were shorter than their arms, but very thick. And with the Ibanese, Maester Yandel describes them as having thick, short legs and long arms. And if that isn't enough for you, according to the world book, with the Ibanese women, coarse dark hair is commonplace even on the upper lip. And in brand six of A Game of Thrones, we see Osha mention that the wives of giants have beards like their husbands. Maester Yandel describes the Ibanese language as grunting and guttural, while John Seven of A Dance of Dragons has this passage. Leathers spoke from the far side of the grove. His words sounded gruff and guttural, but John heard the music in it and recognized the old tongue. Leathers spoke for a long while. When he was done, the giant answered. It sounded like growling, interspersed with grunts, and John could not understand a word of it. In John 2 of A Storm of Swords, John notices there is an odor about the giants, but he can't tell if it's coming from the giants or the mammoths. But then later in the same chapter, Tormund relates that when he slept inside a giantess, she kept him warm, but the stink nearly did him in. Similarly, from two separate points of view, Tyrion 7, A Clash of Kings, and Jaime 2, A Storm of Swords, we see the Ibanese described as being foul-smelling as well. On top of that, Ibanese who live outside the city of Ibn in the forests and mountains live in stone houses built into the earth or, of course, caves. The theory is then this. The hairy men were potentially an offshoot giant species related to the giants of northern Westeros, and so are the Ibanese. At some point, I'd guess the Ibanese and the hairy men were one species, but over time they diverged, perhaps extremely long ago. The difference may be that the hairy men lived on the mainland, while the Ibanese lived and still live on the Isle of Ib itself. This separation and differing lifestyle and probably colder environment could easily explain such a divergence given long enough. Islands in general are often evolutionary microcosms, and what wipes out life on one might not wipe out life on the other. The notion of Ib, once connected to the mainland, brings us back to the real world. For example, consider the case of Rangel Island, the last place on Earth where woolly mammoths lived. You might be surprised to learn they existed there as recently as 4,000 years ago. That's more recent than the Egyptian pyramids, at least the earliest ones, by the way. 
It just so happens that Wrangell Island is in the Arctic Sea near Siberia, and those mammoths probably didn't swim there. <laughs> it's believed that sea levels rose significantly at the end of the last ice age, creating the island, isolating a mammoth population that survived longer and diverged somewhat from the mainland mammoths. This, incidentally, is why so many islands are mountainous. The land masses often are connected to a nearby continent, just not where we can see it. The mountainous parts are the only parts that remain above water. This is potentially the explanation for the breaking of the Arm of Dorne. It was attributed to the children, and it may have been. But it also sounds like the raising of sea levels caused by global ice melt, essentially the end of an ice age, just as it happened on Earth on a few occasions. And this is quite possibly the case with Ib itself. Giants once dwelt on Ib, we are told, but none remain. Though mammoths still roam the islands, plains, and hills, and in the higher mountains, some claim unicorns can be found. So in addition to all those places across the Asosi mainland, giants once dwelt on Ib. According to the maesters, giants don't live beyond the wall anymore either, so it's possible they're wrong on this account as well. After all, we're also told the Ibanese are famously restrictive towards outsiders who are not allowed most places inside the port city of Ibn, let alone outside it, without an invitation, and those are rarely given. So how would the maesters be sure? As is the case with Wrangell Island, surely the mammoths and giants didn't swim to Ib, so climate and or tectonic shifts or something like that caused Ib to separate long ago, meaning thousands of years at least, but possibly tens of thousands or even more. Keeping all that in mind, we have another connection given a somewhat similar description to these. Let's take a closer look at the people who inhabit the Skagosi Isles, another people whose heritage the Maesters debate. The Stoneborn Connection The Skagosi call themselves the Stoneborn, referring to the fact that Skagos means stone in the old tongue. A huge, hairy, foul-smelling folk, some maesters believe the Skagossi to have a strong admixture of Ibanese blood. Others suggest that they may be descended from giants, clad in skins and furs and untanned hides, and said to ride on unicorns. This is a pretty huge claim, the Skagossi connected to the Ibanese. And just as giants prefer to live within caves and caverns, in Samuel 2 of A Feast for Crows, Samwell mentions that the Skagosi people live in caves and the mountain fastness, and which, in addition to the giants, is also a trait of the mainland Ibanese, who make their homes in caves or houses of gray stone dug into the earth. So, with all these connections, be sure to keep your eyes open in the winds of winter when Davos makes his way to Skagos, because there will probably be more clues to these shared ancestral ties. Maybe Davos will come across the skeletons of giants, or stumble upon mammoth bones, or learn of some curious local legend about the first man settling Skagos, and what might have already been living there. Not only do the Ibanese share similar linguistic characteristics and uncanny physical features, but they all used to just live in the same place, too? Hmm. And there are mammoths and unicorns there as well. Hmm. It seems our author is completely beating us over the head and flashing a neon sign with arrows connecting these hairy races. Like dots. And just as we had previously mentioned the clues that may be suggesting an evolutionary link between the great apes and Lang and Sathorios in the Iron Captain chapter of A Feast for Crows, Victorian describes the Ibanese men on Euron's ship as being, quote, as squat and hairy as the apes of Sathorios. But again, wait, there's more. 
As we went over in the first half, there was something of a rivalry between the giants and the children of the forest. Leaf describes the giants as their bane and their brothers, and Maester Yandel cites sources confirming this, claiming that the greatest foe of the children was the giants as well. So what is interesting here is that we have something of a parallel with the Ibanese and what many readers believe to be the Asosi cousin to the children of the forest. The god-kings of Ib, before their fall, did succeed in conquering and colonizing a huge swath of northern Essos, immediately south of Ib itself, a densely wooded region that had formerly been the home of a small, shy forest folk. Some say that the Ibanese extinguished this gentle race, while others believe they went into hiding in the deeper woods or fled to other lands. The Dothraki still call the great forest along the northern coast the Kingdom of the Ithaquiveron, the name by which they knew, the vanished forest dwellers. The fabled sea snake, Corlys Valerian, Lord of the Tides, was the first Westerosi to visit these woods. After his return from the Thousand Islands, he wrote of carved trees, haunted grottoes, and strange silences. A late traveller, the merchant adventurer Brian of Old Town, captain of the cog Spearshaker, provided an account of his own journey across the Shivering Sea. He reported that the Dothraki name for the lost people meant those who walk in the woods. Another parallel that appears to be simply symbolic is, just as we have the giants being accredited with aiding in the construction of the wall in Westeros, the Ibanese have built a wooden wall to protect New Ibish, said to be almost as long as the ice wall of the Night's Watch, if not a third as high. Hmm. So yeah, what do you think? Is this possible ancestral link between the Ibanese and the Giants convincing? And if so, does this also clear up the maesterly debate regarding the bloodline of the Skagosi? Are they all related? We're certainly leaning that way. Questions remain, however. A glaring example is how did we get a race such as the Ibanese, who are one of the shortest races of the known world, who are said to be around five feet tall, from a race of Giants? Right? How did that happen? That's a big difference. It's a good question, and one that we asked ourselves, and jokingly, my best response was that they had to be giant dwarfs. And as fantastical as that may sound, it turns out I was closer to the truth than we realized. After doing some digging, it turns out Reddit user Droll Smith had identified many of these similarities between the giants and the Ibanese as well. And it turns out there is something in evolutionary science called island dwarfism. Basically, when a species of man or animal becomes isolated on an island, like the island of Ib, the phenomena of the island effect comes into play. Essentially, life has a tendency to adapt to its surroundings. So when mainland animals colonize islands, smaller species tend to evolve larger bodies, which is known as island gigantism. And larger species tend to evolve smaller bodies, which is known as island dwarfism. And with island dwarfism particularly, these changes can occur fairly rapidly by evolutionary standards. So with our island-dwelling Ibanese, the answer is simpler than we realize. And they are, in fact, dwarven giants. Or, said another way, giant dwarfs. A second possibility exists as well. In the case of the Wrangell Island mammoths, the isolated population was too small a number for healthy genetic diversity, and this caused inbreeding problems in the long run, which in turn led to smaller animals. Regardless of the cause, though, or the basic point, it's the same result. They got smaller. 
So when looking at the race of hairy men of the Dawn Age, our author is likely showing us something of an evolutionary intermediary between the giants and the Ibanese. It's a missing link, if you will, because when you think about it, the Ibanese of old were likely larger than they are today. And the hairy men of the Dawn Age and the Ibanese are said to have fished the waters of the Shivering Sea since the Dawn Age. They may actually even be the same group of people, as the hairy men were said to ride to battle on unicorns, and unicorns are rumored to still be found on Ib today. And the Skagosi, who are described as massively built and also said to ride on unicorns and speculated to be related to either the Ibanese or the giants, is just another hint. We're at about the halfway point, as is our custom. It's time for a few shout outs. From the depths of Fleabottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall, and a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien, and Arbiter of Scotch, from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Our blood riders include Kohal Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. Today, it's time to shout out our Ironborn Captain patrons, Black Matto's Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Lord Chucklaw's Captain of the Droman Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil, John Gregor, Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God, Sir Kiron of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Droman armed with siphons of wildfire, Aileen, Archer Queen, Captain of the Border Collie, Crimson Kate, Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. Beneath the Gold, a podcast focusing on lesser-known A Song of Ice and Fire characters. Check it out. Prakash, the Lord Protector of the Gallifreyans, Captain of Tardis of the Seven Seas. Tempest of House Brewer is Captain of the Summer Storm. Catherine the Cruel is Captain of the Kraken's Claw. And Lana Del Rey, Death Dreamer, is Captain of the Cyclopean Call. Meta origins. So we have the how. We know how this might occur. But are we missing another crucial aspect of this? Why? It seems like some pretty intricate world building, like something our author put a decent amount of effort in developing all these intertwining connections, which don't seem to have a lot of payout in connecting these races. So again, why? If there is a specific intention, what is it? Well, as we all know, George R. R. Martin occasionally likes to subvert tropes. Instead of the bad guy wearing black and the good guy wearing white, we have John and the brothers of the Night's Watch wearing black. And the others, who seem to be the greatest threat to humanity, are more white in coloring. Instead of knights being honorable and pure and chivalrous, we see a lot of commentary on knighthood, where some of the most despicable characters, like the Mountain, have been given knighthood. While other characters, like Brienne, who seems to be the epitome of honor and chivalry, have not been knighted. It's what George likes to do. He explores certain tropes in his writings, following them at times, twisting and subverting them in others, and a pretty well-known fantasy trope is the animosity between elves and dwarves. In our author's world, he has developed a race that, while not the tall and slender, pointy-eared elves of modern fantasy, well, the children of the forest are a magical race of small, shy forest folk that seem to have borrowed many characteristics associated with the she and fairy folk of Celtic and Irish folklore. But instead of animosity and bad blood between the children and dwarves, our author subverts this trope by making their Dawn Age enemy not short and squat dwarves, but rather lumbering giants instead. What is interesting here, too, when examining the connection between the Ibanese and the giants, we see our author winking at this trope in a major way. As you may already be aware, the most famous example of the elves versus dwarves trope can be found in Tolkien's writings. In Middle-earth, dwarves were short, stocky, 
heavily bearded, and inexcusably hairy race. The women were often just as hairy as the men, and it would be difficult to tell the two genders apart. Note how we get the same here with Martin's giants. Tolkien's dwarves were physically very strong, as well as very skilled craftsmen, smiths, and miners, and are described as the most redoubtable warriors of all the speaking peoples. The weapon of choice for dwarves was often the axe, because it could be used as both a tool or a weapon, and they had a thing for cutting down trees. As we have already discussed, the Ibanese are also a short, stocky, and inexcusably hairy race. Same goes for their women. Just as the dwarves of Tolkien's world are known for being skilled craftsmen and redoubtable warriors with incredible strengths, the Ibanese in the world book are described as skilled craftsmen, doughty warriors, and ferociously strong. While the weapon of choice isn't stated specifically, we only have a couple instances where Ibanese weapons are described, and it's pretty much the same. We have an Ibanese man who was part of the Brave Companions, described as, quote, a dark, brutal axeman from Ib in Arya 1 of A Storm of Swords, and in Tyrion 7 of The Clash of Kings, we get this line. Tyrion had wanted no handsome young guardsmen loitering about Shay day after day. Find me old, ugly, scarred men, preferably impotent, he had told the eunuch. Men who prefer boys, or men who prefer sheep for that matter. Varys had not managed to come up with any sheep lovers, but he did find a eunuch strangler and a pair of foul-smelling Ibanese who were as fond of axes as they were of each other. And just as the dwarves were miners and fellers of trees, we see a nod to this as well. Although the Ibanese are best known for being sailors, the Ibanese who live on the mainland make their living as foresters, goat herds, and miners. At its greatest extent, the Ibanese foothold on Essos was as large as Ib itself and far richer. More and more of the hairy men crossed over from the islands to make their fortunes there, cutting down the trees to put the land under the plough, damming the rivers and streams, mining the hills. So just as dwarves are known for their mining and tree harvesting, the Ibanese are also known for mining and foresting. And to top it all off, we have the maesters speculating the Ibanese had something to do with the extinction of the Ifekevron, who are the Isosi version of the children of the forest. Our author's in-world response to the elven archetype comes here. At Odyssey Con in April of 2008, he was asked, question, how do the tropes influence your writing? George, you have to be aware of them, but you have to smash them with hammers and make up your own. Tolkien twisted an old cliche of elves, tiny fairies, into something else. Met with resistance from his editors at first, arguing over what an elf or dwarf is. Now Tolkien is the cliche. Can't just regurgitate them, you have to do something with them. So the trope that came to mind when asked how tropes influence his writing was coincidentally elves and dwarves, specifically referring for the need to provide fresh takes on Tolkien's perspective, which sounds about right. The Children of the Forest are George R. R. Martin's closest parallel to elves. Thus, when taking a closer examination at the animosity between the children and the giants, what George seems to be doing by showing us this genetic linkage to the Ibanese is winking at the dwarves of Tolkien's writings and showing us his version of that famous trope. Except in A Song of Ice and Fire, his foil to the children of the forest, his version of dwarves, are not small at all. In his world, they are very, very big and are, in fact, giants. And he mixed that with a time and scale large enough to allow for evolution and extinction. We started with Old Nan, then Maester Lewin, then Osha, then Rattleshirt, then giants came on screen directly. Then we added archaeological evidence to the mix. And 
In the Dance of Dragons, another source comes along, actual children of the forest. Where are the rest of you? Bran asked Leaf once. Gone down into the earth, she answered. Into the stones, into the trees. Before the first men came, all this land that you call Westeros was home to us. Yet even in those days we were few. The gods gave us long lives, but not great numbers. Lest we overrun the world as deer will overrun a wood, where there are no wolves to hunt them. That was in the dawn of days, when our sun was rising. Now it sinks, and this is our long dwindling. The giants are almost gone as well. They who are our bane and our brothers. Bran three, A Dance with Dragons. Leif says that even in those days long ago, the children were few. And that line, the giants were their bane and their brothers, is so very evocative. We've discussed the bane part earlier in the episode, but what does Leif mean in the case of being their brothers? This may be simpler. Their mutual enemy, humankind. Though the giants and children may have fought each other before humans came, it doesn't seem either would ever wipe out the other. After all, they had a lot of time to do so and didn't. Humans, though individually not as exceptional as either species, it could be argued, as the long grinding wheel of time has shown, did collectively possess the ability to wipe out not just one group, but both. Last of the giants, first of the men. As the centuries passed, the plight of the giants in Westeros began to mirror the plight of the giants in Essos. In the Dorn chapter of the World Book, Maester Yandel goes on to state that the First Men would eventually come to cross the Arm of Dorn in increasing numbers, claiming the land as their own, and drove the elder races before them, slaughtering giants wherever they found them, hewing down weirwood trees with their bronze axes, making bloody war against the children of the forest. Not only would humans be an existential threat to both giants and children, it might be a case of believer versus non-believer. Recall that the earliest first men were terrified of the heart trees and chopped them down when they could. That upset the children, may have upset the giants as well. After all, 1-1, again, a great example, shows respect for the Grove of Nine when John and company meet him for the first time. They speak of an equal right to pray in front of those trees, and that convinces him. It's always possible one one is rare amongst giants in his faith, but we doubt it. The procession of events in the ancient past may have even followed a similar pattern. Though we've classified the giants as less simple than they seemed, it's clear that the children had a deeper intellect. There's a strong possibility that the giants adopted the worship of the old gods in a similar manner, not unlike the first men. In other words, gradually, perhaps with initial fear of it. It could be that the giants were worshipping the old gods for just as long as the children, but probably not, since our best evidence seems to suggest the old gods are themselves greenseers, meaning those rare gifted children with special powers. So if the old gods are the children, then it's hard for the giants to have worshipped them first. We must also realize this was probably a long-developing process, too. The children have their own ancient prehistory, and even among them, there may have been a time when there were not any green seers at all. The discovery and development of the ancient eldritch secrets of the world was surely not simple, and surely not a quick process. Spreading the worship of the old gods may have even helped bring some measure of peace between giants and children, as it did between humans and the children. In other words, a bit like the pact, but a gradual change rather than some major singular agreement. But the pact is highly relevant. 
if what we know about it is true or partly true, then it was indeed a contract between the children and the first men. Notice who's left out of that. The children found respite eventually for a while, but the giants did not. Tall tales. We are never told specifically what caused this genocide of the giants and the children. Was it out of fear, out of hatred, out of greed and competition for land and natural resources? From everything we gather, it seems as though it might have been a combination of all these things. Fear and rumor go hand in hand. We've just mentioned other fantasy influences, but let's return briefly to real-world legends and stories for a moment. Consider the fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk. You've probably heard that one, but what you probably don't know is that it was first called Jack the Giant Killer. Many or most of the original versions of that tale don't portray the giant as evil. Jack simply finds his way to the giant's castles, straight up robs him. (laughs) This isn't exactly a moral portrayal, so later versions, the ones we're more familiar with, modify the original story to make the giant a tyrant and or eater of human flesh. Hmm, that's where we get the line, fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. That original name for the story, Jack the Giant Killer, sounds an awful like Godry the Giant Slayer, whose name, like so many other tall tales, is misleading. He did kill a giant, but from behind, and that giant was running away. Then he went around calling himself a hero, a bit like Jack, who didn't really fight the giant. He cut the beanstalk so it would fall to its death. From a symbolic perspective, in our own real-world stories and myths, the conquering of man over a race of giants often represents the struggle of civilization over that of an uncivilized world. It's the conquering of savages to make way for a more civilized people and a more civilized state of being. And this is illustrated in the tales of Garth Greenhand, who tried to civilize the giants and the children by teaching them how to farm and sow the earth. But both races resisted these attempts, and it is even said that the giants pelted him with boulders. But according to the histories, there were more attempts to extinguish these races than there were to civilize them. Robert E. Howard, who wrote Conan the Barbarian, a character who symbolizes the struggle of barbarism versus civilization, long before even Tolkien wrote his version of Elves and Dwarfs for Middle-earth, thus by writing of fallen races, of dead and dying cultures, George is not only walking in the path of giants, he's leaving a few footsteps of his own. The Westerlands chapter illustrates this concept, mentioning that giants once dwelt in the hills of the Westerlands and made their homes in the sea-carved caverns at the base of the rock. But then the first men came and the first men did what the first men do, cutting down the forest, plowing the fields and driving roads through the hills where the giants dwelt. Farms and villages, forts and castles began to spring up until, quote, the giants were no more. Knowing that the giants had once inhabited the caves within the rock, it makes you question the legend of the first Casterly, who was said to have tracked a lion to its den in a cavern at the base of the rock. He slew this lion and its mate, but spared the cubs. Now, if giants were present within the cavern system of the rock, it's quite possible this first Casterly would have encountered these giants as well, and probably would have hunted them in a similar fashion, unless the giants were already driven out of the Westerlands by this time. But even if they were gone, there were probably some bones left behind. The Greenseer Cave isn't the only place in Westeros where giant skulls can be found. This kind of thing didn't occur only in the Westerlands. According to various legends, this displacement and destruction of these races was systemic and occurred throughout various portions of Westeros. In fact, the great deeds of cultural heroes were born through these tales. We hear of legends such as Brandon of the Bloody Blade, an ancestor to House Stark, driving the giants from the Reach and slaughtering the children of the forest at Red Lake. 
We also hear of an ancient king of winter driving giants from the north. And in Sansa 7 of A Storm of Swords, Littlefinger refers to tales of the heads of giants decorating the walls of Winterfell. In the Stormlands, the giants made their homes in the foothills of the Red Mountains and along the stony spine of Massey's Hook. But like the Westerlands, the Reach, and the North, unfortunately, we see the giants are driven from the Stormlands as well with Durin the Dower slaying Lun the Last, king of the giants at the Battle of Crookwater. We also see mention of giants within certain fables and legends of Westeros. And while these types of tales might be easily dismissed within our own world, within A Song of Ice and Fire, giants are very, very real and were much more commonplace thousands of years ago. So these legendary tales of giants may in fact be based in or corruptions of actual accounts of the ancient past. For example, we have tales of the gray giant Argoth Stoneskin raging outside the walls of Old Town. We hear of Serwyn of the Mirror Shield saving Princess Darissa from the giants. Arya recalls Old Nan retelling a story about a man imprisoned by evil giants only to escape and fall prey to the others. We hear of giants mixing blood into their morning porridge and devouring bulls whole. It is also said that the last hero had sought out the aid of the children of the forest, and while on his mission, he had faced, quote, ravenous giants, cold servants, and the others themselves. Arya also remembers a story about the Titan of Bravos, who was said to eat the juicy pink flesh of highborn girls. And in A Dance of Dragons, first builder Uffel Yarwick turns down John's offer to lend him a giant to aid the Night's Watch rebuilding efforts in the belief that giants eat human flesh. These are some very shocking tales because they don't align well with what we have seen so far. We haven't seen evil ravenous giants drinking blood or eating the flesh of highborn girls. As we've been over, the giants don't seem to be interested in meat at all. And we don't see any giants stealing princesses who would need to be saved by some heroic knight. In fact, when we look at how one one protected Val, also known as the Wilding Princess, we see that it was one one who had protected Val from Sir Patrick's attempts to steal her. So in this case, in a sense, it was a giant protecting a princess from a knight, not the other way around. I mean, when you think about it, other than being part of the attack on the wall, which was a joint effort amongst all the wildlings, the only times we have seen a giant become violent was when they were threatened, as we have seen with one one in the Weirwood Grove and again when he was guarding Val. So the question here is, why are there so many stories that are far from the actual truth? In reality, it is the winners of war and politics who write the history, and it is the values of a culture which shape their legend and myth, and tales have a tendency to grow in the telling. Rumors as a general theme can also be a powerful tool in garnering support for your cause, whatever it is. In Sansa Three of A Clash of Kings, we see how quickly the Northern Army had become flesh-eating savages themselves. Sansa had always thought Lancel Lannister comely and well-spoken, but there was neither pity nor kindness in the look he gave her. Using some vile sorcery, your brother fed upon Sir Stafford Lannister with an army of wargs. Not three days' ride from Lannisport, thousands of good men were butchered as they slept, without the chance to lift sword. After the slaughter, the Northmen feasted on the flesh of the slain. But we see examples of this elsewhere, too. The young Kai have similar rumors of Danny feeding her dragons on human flesh and bathing in the blood of virgins. The phrase dropped ridiculous lies about Rob Stark at the Merman's court. And in Tyrion Three of A Clash of Kings, we see the small council conspiring to make up rumors regarding Selyse sleeping with Patchface to disseminate to the small folk. Time and time again, 
From the Andal Invasion to the Blackfriar Rebellion to the Dance of Dragons, we see how history is told from the perspective of the winners, and those who fight on the other side of the ward become demonized. So, when looking at everything in this context, after thousands of years of being hunted and driven into exile and separated behind a massive wall, the truth behind the nature of the wildlings and the giants have evolved into scary tales of terrifying monsters being told to children by their wet nurses. No giants, no peace. The journey back took much longer than the journey to the grove. The giant's pace was a ponderous one, despite the length and girth of those legs, and he was forever stopping to knock snow off low-hanging limbs with his maul. It's like something a kid would do. Quite a contrast. He's having fun. Hardly a portrayal of evil. Really the opposite. And when one one encounters Patchface a few chapters later, we see similar innocent behavior with him reaching for the fool in fascination. I mean, if you saw someone with a face tattooed in a checkered pattern, hopping up and down, singing about the dead or dancing with cowbells attached to their hair, you would be fascinated as well. <laughs> or maybe a little scared. Or both. Unfortunately, one one's reaching for Pat's face turned his, I know, I know, oh, 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 into, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I mean, if you saw a giant reaching for you, and 10 seconds before that, you didn't even know giants existed? you would probably say something a lot like, oh no, oh no, oh no, as well, if not something louder. Patchface is from Volantis, and before he was drowned, he was highly trained and educated. So we're confident he's heard the story of Triarch Bellico, who was eaten alive by giants. So it's possible in that instant, Patchface thought he was about to become one one's next snack, like the famous Triarch. Though that was not the case. This should give us pause, actually. It's entirely possible the story is embellished like so many others. I mean, political figures in A Song of Ice and Fire are more likely to die from assassination, right? But if Triarch Bellico was truly eaten, then we do have carnivorous or omnivorous giants after all. Next, we have this interaction, where John sees the largest, oldest, and most impressive of the giants, whom Tormund does have an exchange with. What did you say to him? Was that the old tongue? Aye. I asked him if that was his father he was forking. They looked so much alike, except his father had a better smell. And what did he say to you? Tormund Thunderfist cracked a gap-toothed smile. He asked me if that was my daughter riding there beside me, with her smooth pink cheeks. John, too. A storm of swords. So we have Tormund casually insulting the largest and most formidable of the giants. Hmm. If the giants really were the monsters of legend, flinging insults at the largest of them probably wouldn't be a good idea. But the thing is, they aren't monsters. And in Mag's case, he can take a joke and fling an insult right back, which again speaks not only to their nature, but it's another hint that they're not just simple-minded lumbering beasts. This is like two buddies teasing each other. It's important to realize, too, that people don't make fun of each other like that when they're far apart in social status. Really, it sounds like what amounts to propaganda against giants is a major reason why they're nearly extinct. Alongside these tales of evil carnivorous giants, occasionally we hear tales that don't depict giants as terrifying monsters. For example, it is said that John the Oak, a son of Garth Greenhand, was born of a giantess mother. The Hedge Knight reveals that the tale of Florian and Jonkil might involve a giant, as there was mention of a nicely painted giant within the Florian and Jonkil puppet performance. The Winged Knight of legend was also said to have even counted giants as his friends. But despite these few legends that depict giants in slightly better light, the majority of the tales seem like gross distortions of the truth, and some just seem like flat-out lies. 
but they are not isolated to the giants alone. The wildlings who have had a similar fate displaced beyond the wall have similar stories about them, how they are slavers and slayers who consorted with ghouls, drank blood from polished horns, and carried off women to sell to the others. And so far, we haven't seen any slaver wildlings drinking blood from polished horns, and although they do carry off women, we don't see any of these stolen women being sold to the others. This brings us back to what we said about the pact. First men fought both the giants and the children of the forest, but we don't really see this type of demonization with the children. Just the opposite, in fact. We're told that the first men feared the faces in the trees primarily, but even the heart trees became accepted and then embraced over time, despite the blood sacrifices made to them. Although the nature of the magic they possessed is disputed by the maesters, we don't really see the children as evil flesh-eating monsters or the kidnappers of princesses. In the stories, they're just... Small forest folk who couldn't withstand the onslaught of the first men who had settled Westeros in increasing numbers. So if the children were persecuted in a similar manner, why don't we see similar tales? Well, the answer is pretty simple. As previously mentioned, it is the winners of war and politics who get to write the history, and the animosity between the first men and the children was settled through the pact that was forged on the Isle of Faces, which, according to the World Book, the giants were never part of. The harvesting of the trees soon brought the first men into conflict with the children of the forest, however, and for hundreds and thousands of years they made war upon one another, until the first men took the old gods of the children for their own and divided up the lands in the pact sealed on the Isle of Faces amidst the great lake called the God's Eye. The pact came late in the history of man in Westeros, however. By the time it was signed, the giants, who were no part of it, were almost gone from the stormlands and even the children were much diminished. So the reason the children are not demonized is because of this pact or this truce between themselves and the first men. In the end, they were kind of on the same side. The first men even agreed to give up their own religion and began worshiping the old gods, putting a godswood in all their castles and holdfasts. We can even see historical examples of the first men and children fighting side by side during the Andal invasion, such as the Werewood Alliance in the Vale and the Battle for Highheart in the Riverlands. The giants were explicitly mentioned as never being part of this pact. And so because of this, after thousands of years, the giants are only remembered in legend as princess kidnappers, blood drinkers, and flesh-eating monsters. The plight of the giants is a sad and familiar one that parallels the destruction of the savage giant races and the myths and legends of our own world, as well as many of the native and indigenous populations that have fallen victim to colonialism in our own world. George R. R. Martin has put a significant amount of time and care into his world, allowing us freedom to speculate and throw some interesting possibilities out there. The most fun for us is when we begin to speculate and theorize, only to find out there is a heap of evidence to support our speculations. And believe it or not, that is exactly what we found when we delved deep into these various rabbit holes, or giant's caves if you prefer, on the descendants of giants. Some of this was hiding right under our noses. As well, and as usual, with so many major world-building elements, it's not just backdrop. Giants are clearly meant to play a continued role in the rest of the series. If people like Sir Patrick of King's Mountain and Othel Yarwick could just get over these old prejudices to see the evidence that the old stories are clearly wrong, that the giants and their mammoths could be a great ally against the others and the army of the dead, well, if not, then humans are really going to make it hard on themselves. Either way, we'll probably see some giant whites the sound of them walking. That alone, my friends, is terrifying and exciting both. Imagine, too, if they can use their voices. John notes that one one's laugh puts a dragon's roar to shame. 
If they're silent giants when dead, like Robert Strong's of the North, that's another sort of scary. And speaking of dragons, giants and dragons on the same battlefield? There's got to be a good chance. Maybe a giant chance. Beyond these speculations of the future, we have more to explore about the past, which in turn could tell us even more about the future. That's the kind of reward that comes with digging into George R. R. Martin's world. Throughout the rest of this series, we'll explore Brandon the Builder, Jorah Moon and his horn, and the characters who may or may not have the blood of giants coursing through their veins. This was a tricky but particularly fun episode to make. It's not often we get a chance to talk about evolution, long climate and continental changes, prehistoric monsters, and real-world legends all amidst George's creations. We had to do a lot of imagining and digging and imaginary digging, and occasionally there are dead ends, but mostly there was a big payoff. Let's thank the people who made it possible. We're so thankful for George R. R. Martin himself. Without his works, I don't know what we would be doing right now. What about you guys? Script work was done by myself and Crow Food's daughter. Ditto all the research. The quote work was done by McCall Schick of Vassals of Kingsgrave and Podcast of Surprise fame. And it's a Witcher book club. So if you're fans of The Witcher, check out the Podcast of Surprise with me and McCall. She is at Ink is Rain on Twitter. Additional quotes and the title sections were read by Zach Louie of Game of Owns. Production and video editing, the majority was done by Ashea. Some of the audio work was done by our Benjineer. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher. Leave us a comment on iTunes or on YouTube or wherever you consume History of Westeros podcast. Same goes for the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. Definitely check it out. Amanda's channel is full of awesomeness. Thanks to other patrons like Peers of the Realm, the Mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, Titles, Titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, known as the best, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire is the Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North, Lord Brendan Lannister is the Bloodline, Ruler of Castle Everroar, and Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by Flagship Prince Damon. Lord James briefly entertained the idea of having giants in his cruise. Mm, but that didn't work out too well after the first attempt ended with a sunken ship and one less giant in the world. Jenny the Just is captain of the ghost ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has recently been sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. The tales have nothing to do with giants, but we're going to investigate further nonetheless. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade Red Frost. Even he, who knows the giants well, learned something new today. Sea Lord Sean Gallagher is the Titan's binger, owner of nine Valyrian steel ears. Our White Walker patrons include Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, blue eyes and golden memories. Alexander Greyblood is first of the first men, now crowned in ice, called Silencebringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword Pale Frost. The small council includes Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, Master of Coin, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Liam Mullen, and Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor, Master of Karate, Friendship for Everyone, and Ships. 
Lady Dyrlis of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Ashland Winter is the Hawkseye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Bemmy's Snuggle Bunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, Sharpshooter of the Weirwood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snuggle Bunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Weirwood. Listen for the silence. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. Lady Mora of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features weirwood doors with painted moons. Lena Snow is the Twilight Star, bastard daughter of Dane, wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia. Lady Amy Blackfire is Analyzer of Eastern Symbolism, lover of poles, and dismantler of the patriarchy. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council includes Rebea Star-Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are court's crystal, is wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, Fire and Ink. The Purple Lord Leo Anansi is Master of Whisperers. Lady Wolfbird is Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. Lady Carlin Carey is of Castle Stonesharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel. She's prime rider of the Rising Hills and Master of Laws. Our Kingsguard is led by Lord Commander Namian of House Darklin, the Night Slayer, Valyrian Sword, Onyx Abyss. He's backed by Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star, Gregor Snow called Snowbear, a Bastard of Winterfell, Vaughn of House Furster, whose sigil is a mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on a light blue field, Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman is the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark is Gunslinger Knight of the Winter Kings, back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect my King Aziz. Well, thanks. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmant, the Sellsword Sentinel, and he's backed by Sir Rambo Knight of House Ganon, First Blood, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids, the Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin, Nora Neko, and Archmaester Vena, whose ring rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by Lady Rita, the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, and Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum red and brown. Stay frosty. Last but not least... The Lord Commander of the History of Westeros Night's Watch is Richard the Ligerheart, wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes. Motto, go blue. Backed by First Builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire and the Snow, First Ranger Liam, a.k.a. Sir Waiting on a Nickname, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. That's it. Everybody, if you want to get a cool title like that, check out patreon.com slash history of Westeros. You can also sign up for monthly support through Anchor slash Spotify. It just adds right to your bill and you can forget about it. And until next time, everyone, Valar Reredus.